Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the recent release of confidential tax return data by ProPublica. The initial article published on June 8th presented a, quote, true tax rate for Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and others, and detailed multiple reasons why high-wealth individuals pay lower rates of tax under the current U.S. tax rules. In today's episode, we discuss the pros and cons of a wealth tax and highlight some of the ways high-wealth individuals avoid income tax in the U.S. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. ProPublica got a hold of what it refers to as a trove of confidential tax returns and audit data, and they're using it, at least at this point, to analyze the tax positions of the wealthiest Americans. I think the crown jewel of the initial article is this quote-unquote true tax rate that they compute. They take total taxes paid from 2014 to 2018 as a percentage of the growth in these individuals' wealth over the same period. And to throw out a few examples here, they calculate a true tax rate of 0.1% for Mr. Warren Buffett. Jeff Bezos is just under 1%. Elon Musk is paying a little bit more, but still only 3.27%. What do you make of this true tax rate, as they call it? I think my biggest issue is with them calling it the, quote, true tax rate. One of the big features of the article and of the U.S. tax code, as we currently know it, is that we don't tax unrealized depreciation, which is an increase in the value of an asset you own, like, for example, stock in a company that you founded or bought. It's unrealized if you haven't sold the stock to actually garner those gains. And there are good reasons why we don't tax unrealized depreciation. First, it's because it only exists on paper and could just as easily disappear tomorrow. The second reason we don't tax unrealized depreciation is related to a concept called wherewithal to pay. It is inequitable to tax a transaction when the taxpayer cannot pay the tax. And that could very well be the case if a taxpayer recognizes a lot of, of unrealized depreciation and most of their wealth, most of their cash is tied up in that asset that's appreciating. Similarly, we don't currently tax wealth in the U.S. We only tax income that has been realized, which you can kind of think of as meaning that you have the actual cash in your pocket. So yes, if Warren Buffett's stock appreciates by $24 billion over a period of five years, but he doesn't actually sell any of it, he is not subject to tax as the law is currently written in the U.S. Now, is that law wrong? That's debatable. Did Warren Buffett do anything wrong or shady to achieve that low, quote, true tax rate? I'd say no. I agree with you. I also take issue with their use of the word true here to describe the tax rate. I mean, they completely made up the rules. And the rules that they made up for calculating that tax rate have nothing to do with the tax policy in place, as you've just explained. So, you know, using their logic, you could call us, you and me, true celebrities because of this podcast. If we take Warren Buffett's taxes paid as a percentage of his taxable income, we'd get a rate of almost 19%. For Elon Musk, it's almost 30%. Those are still well below the top marginal tax rate or the tax rate that you pay on the next dollar of income that you earn, which top out at 37 to 39% these days. But that makes sense because they're not the marginal tax rate. They're the average tax rate which is the average amount of tax you pay on your average dollar of income. And so we'd expect it to be lower. And those rates don't seem terribly unreasonable, but they are different than the quote unquote true rate that exists only in the minds of the writers of that article. 
Exactly. And I'll say it again. I do understand the journalistic desire to make a really strong points that highlight the potential faults in our current system. I, I totally get that. But I guess I'd like to see it done in a more balanced way. Yeah. In any case, the central issue raised by the article does seem to be whether we should tax wealth or income as we currently do. Should we be taxing appreciation that's unrealized? Or should we stick with our current system of only taxing realized gains? And this idea of a wealth tax has gained momentum in recent years, um, specifically among some of the more left-leaning Democrats. So, for example, Bernie Sanders proposed a wealth tax, as did Elizabeth Warren. Mm -hmm. There is actually a proposal right now. Elizabeth Warren is one of the sponsors. It's called the ultra-millionaire tax. So not just for regular millionaires. It is for ultra-millionaires. Right. And it would impose a 2% annual tax on wealth over $50 million. And then if you're fortunate enough to have a billion dollars of wealth, that rate of tax would go up to 3%. And the sponsors estimate that about 100,000 Americans would be subject to this tax and that the tax would raise about $3 trillion of incremental revenue over the next decade. So we're going to talk a little bit about the pros and cons of a wealth tax. The obvious pro, in theory, is that proposals like these should reduce wealth inequality. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about inequality in the, in the last several years, and some of it focuses on wealth inequality and some of it focuses on income inequality. And I just want to take a second to discuss the difference between the two because they are different. A lot of this has arisen in part due to some work by Thomas Piketty pointing out growing inequality between capital holders or those who have the wealth and the workers who are those who have income. Elon Musk is a great example here. He's a great case study. So his wealth is estimated to be uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 billion, depending on the day. And he famously recently only accepted a salary of a single dollar. The rest of his income is gains on his assets, whatever stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera, that he has, and performance-based compensation, meaning he only gets paid by the company if he's able to improve the company's growth and stock price. And to be fair, Elon Musk is not the only executive who does this, right? There are several executives of publicly traded companies who take the salary of only a dollar. So Elon Musk has wealth, but not a lot of income. In contrast, think of a college athlete who very recently is newly able to sign endorsement deals based on her name, image, and likeness. And this 18-year-old quote-unquote kid could earn more than a million dollars in the in the next year from a starting point of zero wealth. It was assumption I'm making because she's only 18 years old and probably doesn't have a whole lot of assets. So that kid has income and high income at that but not wealth. And because our current tax system taxes income, not wealth, guess what? It's the college athlete who's going to be paying higher taxes than Elon Musk and his almost $200 billion of wealth. Yep. That's an excellent point. Wealth and income inequality are distinct. And according to some research, it is wealth inequality that is larger and more problematic in the U.S. than income inequality is. But they are definitely linked. And the thing is that if you tax two people on the same amount of income, that tax can be more detrimental to the person who has less wealth. Yes. And that is a disturbance of something that we call horizontal equity. That is a very desirable feature of a tax policy. And it's meant to ensure that two people who have the same amount of income and assets pay the same amount of tax. And so the point is, if we're only focusing on the income part of it and ignoring the wealth behind it, we could be imposing some horizontal inequity into our system. Mm -hmm. So if wealth inequality is a big problem in America, and if we know that taxes are a tool for wealth redistribution, then why don't we have a wealth tax? 
for starters, particularly in the U.S., there's a question of whether a wealth tax would even be constitutional, which I think is interesting. Second, more practically speaking, it's just hard to estimate somebody's wealth based on publicly available information. And a lot of people are trying. And through those efforts, we're seeing the wide disparity in estimates. So for example, in 2016, uh, two researchers, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, estimated that the top 1% of U.S. households held 42% of the wealth in 2012. But more recently, three more researchers, Smith, Zadar, and Zwick, modified the estimation method from Saez and Zuckman and produced estimates of wealth concentration that are only about half as large. And that's part of the point of one of the other problems with a wealth tax is that it's really hard to administer. It's difficult to value one's wealth regularly. Even if you were trying to truthfully report the value of your assets, it gets tricky because a lot of these different kinds of assets are hard to value. Art, collectibles, private companies. A wealth tax could increase incentives for someone to move their wealth abroad in the hopes of hiding it or discounting its valuation, or to move wealth into exactly these asset classes I was just talking about because they're more opaque and harder to value. I have some research with Becky Lester at Stanford and Kevin Markle at Michigan State suggesting that wealthy expats moved financial assets into real estate and art in response to increased reporting requirements for U.S. citizens about financial assets. So as soon as the reporting for financial assets goes up, they move some of their assets into other asset classes to avoid it. And the thing that's so interesting about this is that it's the wealthy who can afford to do that because they don't need to spend the money, right? Like if I took the money that's in my bank account, yeah, I could go and I could buy a cheapo piece of art, but that doesn't do me any good because they need the cash. So again, it's this wealth breeding wealth. Wealthy people who don't need to have their cash on hand to spend it can afford to tie it up in these illiquid assets like real estate like art, because all they're really trying to do is preserve their wealth to be able to pass it on to future generations. And I think one of the best examples of that, what you were just talking about, is a Freeport. So a Freeport is a warehouse, usually located right next to an international airport, where goods can remain without technically actually entering into the country and going through customs. And there's a really good reason to have Freeports for goods that are just passing through from one location to another and you have to stop over somewhere. Freeports are now used by wealthy individuals as a place to store some of these high value items that they can easily put on a plane and move. So artwork and jewelry. They can fly themselves and their friends in on private jets and host a cocktail party showing off all their fancy artwork and then close it back up and leave and the U.S. tax authorities are none the wiser. All right, so, so far we've said that a wealth tax might not be constitutional in the U.S., that wealth is difficult to estimate, which makes revenue projections difficult. The third point we're bringing up here is that because wealth is hard to estimate, a wealth tax is going to be very difficult to administer, particularly for the IRS that has been under-resourced for quite some time. The fourth problem with a wealth tax is that it can lead to distortions in savings and investment. So, Lisa, you are the economist here you get one degree in economics 20 years ago and suddenly you're an economist. The only major I ever pursued other than accounting was something called leisure studies. And I don't think that's going to help us in a podcast about taxes and wealth inequality. And your one degree in economics is infinitely more than my degrees in economics. So I'm turning to you and saying, please talk a little bit more 
about why it is that wealth taxes distort savings and investment. Sure. So let's try to keep the math pretty simple here. Let's consider a 2% wealth tax that's going to be assessed on the total market value of an asset. And let's assume that that asset has a return in any given year of 4%. Okay. So this relatively small wealth tax of 2%, given that the return is only 4% of the value of the asset, that tax is 50% of the income earned on the asset. And a 50% income tax is way higher than any of the other income taxes that we have. And this is supposed to be probably capital gains, which usually get a discounted tax rate. There would be people rioting if there was a tax rate on income of 50%. I mean, we used to have that years and years and years ago, but that's not anything that we've seen in either of our lifetimes. Exactly. A tax that high would actually discourage people from investing because it eats into those returns to investment by so much. Less investment means less entrepreneurship, less risk-taking. Both of those can lead to less economic growth and less saving. That means that anytime we get some sort of negative economic shock, like the global financial crisis or even COVID, we have a lot more families that just don't have those emergency funds sitting around. An important thing to realize here is that these four major cons of wealth taxes that we're discussing, they're not all theoretical. It turns out that these things actually crop up, these problems crop up in practice. So just like in fashion, tax trends apparently are cyclical. And right now we're seeing a resurgence of 90s fashion. We could say that the wealth tax is a resurgence of 1990s tax policy. Turns out wealth taxes were super popular in the 90s in Europe. All of this is super interesting, but all I can think about is whether I could get away with teaching in combat boots. You let that visual set for a second. <laughs> 90s fashion. 90s fashion. So about a dozen European countries had wealth taxes in the 90s. And because of all of these problems that we're talking about, only about three European countries still have these wealth taxes today. So most of these countries abandoned these wealth taxes because they were costly to enforce, because they forced wealth out of the country and because they didn't raise substantial revenue. In fairness, Senator Warren, who we said is one of the co-authors of this ultra-millionaire tax proposal, is trying to learn from some of the mistakes these European countries made. So for example, that ultra-millionaire tax proposal would implement a 30% mandatory audit rate of taxpayers mm -hmm. subject to the tax, and it would also impose a 40% exit tax on anyone who renounces their U.S. citizenship, really trying to target that incentive to, to take your wealth and leave the U.S. Mm -hmm. It also says that it would, quote, encourage new tools to determine the value of hard-to-value assets. Super vague. Not sure what those tools are, but we're going to develop them. Machine learning. Blockchain. <laughs> Blockchain. Big data. Big data. Big data. And Lisa, I know you're going to love this one. If I'm reading the rule correctly, there would be a marriage penalty associated with this ultra-millionaire tax because, quote, individuals who are married shall be treated as one applicable taxpayer. So any of my former students know that the marriage penalty is one of my absolute favorite things to talk about, in part because it has a lot to do with my own love story, which maybe, just maybe, my spouse will let me tell publicly someday. Uh, our love story has a lot to do with taxes, too. It does. Look like. Another point of focus in the ProPublica analysis is how wealthy taxpayers avoid tax. Many of the things that the article discusses are legal, and I have to give it to the journalists. They point that out repeatedly, that they're talking about legal strategies, so they're not accusing anybody of doing anything illegal, which I really appreciate. 
Yeah, but the issue arises when high wealth taxpayers are more able to take advantage of gray areas. There is an argument that wealthy taxpayers are just better suited to push the envelope when it comes to tax avoidance. So next, we're going to look at some of these tax strategies that afford high wealth individuals opportunities to push the envelope and avoid tax. The article mentions Jeff Bezos as offsetting his income with investment losses. To put it very simply, there are two types of profit-seeking businesses in the U.S., those that are taxable C-corporations and those that are not. The latter are called flow-through entities because any income or loss of the business flows through to the owners of the business. The business itself isn't taxable. All of its income, losses, deductions, credits, et cetera, end up on the tax return of the owners. So investors in a flow-through entity, like a partnership, as an example, they can deduct losses of one of their flow-through businesses against income from another similar flow-through investment. And this is good tax policy because it encourages that risk-taking that we want that can lead to economic growth. The amount that you could deduct for some of these losses used to be unlimited, but the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 did put a limitation on the amount of losses taxpayers could deduct in any one year. But the CARES Act, in response to COVID, suspended these limits in a move that was estimated to cost about $135 billion in tax relief, all of which went to the top 1%. Obviously, this is also a problem if the losses are fabricated, for example, deducting $70,000 for hairstyling, as has been alleged, of former President Trump. The article also mentions an interest expense deduction for loans. These deductions are available to most individuals regardless of their wealth. The most common example would be deductions for interest on loans used to purchase a residence, which is called a mortgage interest deduction. And basically any homeowner can qualify for that deduction. Right. But the article argues that these loans are easier for wealthy individuals to obtain. So as we said, Elon Musk takes no salary from Tesla. And even if he doesn't cash in on his equity compensation or the appreciation in some of his other investments, he can use those assets as collateral for a loan. So basically he borrows against his stock. He receives cash in the form of a loan. Loans aren't taxable because it's not income. You have to pay it back. So no tax consequence of the cash that he's getting to afford his lifestyle. And to boot, he gets a deduction for the interest that he owns on the loan. So he's reducing his taxes even further. The article also mentions charitable contributions as another tax avoidance strategy that high wealth individuals in particular can exploit. So again, this is a deduction that's perfectly legal and it's available to all individual taxpayers, but it can potentially be more easily exploited and abused by high wealth individuals. And that's for a couple reasons. For starters, since President Trump increased the standard deduction as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, many lower income individuals no longer get a direct tax benefit from charitable contributions. You have to, quote, itemize your deductions in most years to be able to get a tax benefit for charitable contributions. Second, there's a particularly egregious example of philanthropy gone awry called a syndicated conservation easement. That's a mouthful. So a conservation easement allows a landowner to retain ownership of their land while donating the development rights to a public charity like a land conservancy. As an example, a group of investors might purchase land they never intended to develop in the first place and then donate the easement 
and promise not to develop it. What they get to do is claim a deduction for this hypothetical value that the land would have been worth if they had developed it. There are some estimates that taxpayers participating in these tax schemes claim a $4 tax deduction for every $1 they invested in the property. And that's amazing because that's actually using taxes to make money for yourself. That's crazy. That's not the intention behind these rules. And speaking of $70,000 haircuts, President Trump's leaked tax returns showed that almost all of his charitable donations related to these conservation easements. The article also cites credits as a way that high wealth individuals avoid tax, specifically the child tax credit. These are a new feature introduced again by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and it grants a $2,000 credit per child regardless of the taxpayer's wealth or income. I personally wouldn't call this a strategy that's ripe for abuse because I can't imagine that anyone in their right mind would have a child just to save $2,000 in taxes because that is a losing proposition. You would have to pay me a lot more than that. Understandably so. Now for the good the bad and the ugly of the ProPublica article. So I know you way too well to ask you to lead us off here. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to put on my optimist hat and start with the good. And I'm going to show some serious tax nerd bias here and say that I love that this article has people talking. And, And I mean people, not just tax nerds like us. All right, it's a stretch, but I'm going to give it an A for effort. I tried. And I'm going to quickly move into my comfort zone, which is the bad. That's where you live. To me, it does feel a little bit uncomfortable to name names. Mm -hmm. It seems like the article could have made a similar point about policy using either anonymized examples or broader statistics for larger groups of high wealth Mm -hmm. taxpayers. Naming names almost takes the focus off of this broken system, which is what needs to be fixed, and puts it onto the taxpayers, many of whom I think are just playing by the rules, which the article does point out. So while I have the floor, I don't want to miss out on an opportunity to express my pessimism about the efficacy of a wealth tax. I would never deny you an opportunity to be pessimistic. Um, But it does feel a little bit like a Band-Aid over a bullet wound because it doesn't address the underlying problems, not just in our tax code, but beyond that, that create wealth inequality in the first place. And it pains me that I'm about to say this, but I don't think that taxes are powerful enough on their own. I think we need to look at things like requiring living wages and mandatory health insurance and things like that. And then maybe taxes can be part of a group of policy initiatives that tackle wealth inequality. But I don't think that taxes are powerful enough to do it on their own. I'm dying on the inside a little bit. I don't believe I just said it. That just leaves the ugly, which is what if it wasn't a leak? What if this is... We have this information because it was hacked. The IRS systems are old. They're badly in need of an upgrade. It begs the question, who did this? What else was stolen? And what is their end game? What's next? What are they going to release and why? I also have to ask and wonder how much this leak or this uh, publication, this release of confidential tax return data does to undermine general confidence in the IRS. The article and others by ProPublica highlights the need for stronger tax enforcement, and I worry that releasing these data may hurt those efforts to increase IRS resources. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.